When it comes to investing, retirement, taxes, healthcare, and estate planning, the decisions you make today can greatly affect the quality of life for you and your loved ones tomorrow. What you need is straight and unbiased information on the most important issues you'll face when planning for your retirement and financial future. Good news. You found Premier Retirement Radio with Jeff Fogan. Jeff is the founder of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management, and he's been guiding people financially and into retirement for 30 years. So get ready for an hour of the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan. And now here's Jeff Vogan and Jeff Shade. Thank you so much. Welcome to Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to help you reach your wealth management and retirement goals through smart investing and careful planning. My name is Jeff Shade, and as always, I'm just here to ask the questions, but the words of wisdom and solid advice come from the other Jeff in this radio program. That would be Jeff Vogan, founder and president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic now that I'm with you here on the radio. Always a pleasure to talk to the fine people here of the greater Tucson area, talking about their money, their retirement, getting to and through that. A lot to talk about on today's show, Jeff. Of course, we're going to be talking about current events. We'll start that off in just a moment with an article uh, that you read on a newsletter called On My Radar. We'll talk more about that. We've also got our case of the week, listener questions, and then we'll explore the ins and outs of target date funds. And a lot of people don't know this, but they do own target date funds. So let's get back to what's happening now with this article. As I said, this newsletter is called On My Radar by Steve Blumenthal. Can you break it down for us and how it applies to us? Well, yeah. Steve Blumenthal is a guy. He's just—he's a hedge fund manager. He's just a very well-educated person. He's kind of self-educated. He goes to everybody from John Malden, Malden Economics. He uh, goes to conferences where Dalio, Ray Dalio, who's the largest hedge fund manager on the planet, I think, Bridgewater Investments, I think is uh, Bridgewater Capital, I think, is his hedge fund. And he, um, I don't know what the number is, but he manages more money than anybody. So he's hes an old wise guy that uh, knows his stuff. Uh, we talked about Stan Druckenmiller recently, who managed George Soros' funds and manages billions of his own dollars too. And these are people that Steve Blumenthal very commonly quotes. And he goes through a little synopsis here. And it's one of my favorite things I read over the weekend because it comes out on Fridays. In fact, if, if anybody would want to get the, uh, it just type in On My Radar by Steve Blumenthal, you can probably get a copy of it. There's a free access to the newsletter and you could be reading some of the same stuff that I am. But he starts off before we talk about Ray Dalio, kind of something interesting, really about just the credit cycle, the debt cycle, the market cycles, and the weirdness that we're seeing right now and why it seems to be the same, but yet different than, you know, previous times Ray Dalio mentions that too in a minute, but there's a reference to a book called The Price of Time by Edward Chancellor, which basically goes over the last 500 years of a detailed study of interest rates and their impact on societies. Interesting, probably the comment was it's not a good book to read on vacation if you're in the financial world or worried about money, but yeah. uh, nevertheless, very interesting. But basically, the, the main factor is the unnatural low interest rates and how they play on economy, markets, and you know things going forward, which is really basically where we're at right now. It's interesting. It says, "'Tis not altogether improbable that when the nation becomes heartily sick of their debts and are cruelly oppressed by them, some daring projector may arise of visionary schemes for their discharge." Hmm. Like what? Printing money? Public credit. And public credit will begin by that time to be a little frail. The least little touch will destroy it is what happened in France. Talks about what happened in France back in the King Louis XIV times, Versailles, you know, 1700s and stuff. Uh, Talked about public credit. Talks about all these real world experiences where we just got into too much debt. Right before that, the point is this. It says, you know, the price of time, the value is the, the guiding light behind every pivotal financing choice, saving, spending, or investing, right? It's really a, really a choice. And so the government has that big choice. Interesting, it says, depressing the interest 
interest rate emerges as the potential method to energize the economy that would otherwise be headed for a downturn. Well, how often have we seen that? We had it uh, happen, especially in the 07 when the banking crisis happened, when Obama took office, uh, or actually it just kind of happened right on the tail end of Bush and Obama, when the banking crisis got a little out of whack and they had to do all this quantitative easing and stimulus, they found out that printing money actually made the uh, market go better because uh, you know they created liquidity. It says depressing the interest rates. And so what they did also in order to create that liquidity was keep lowering interest rates, which they have over the last you know 10 or 15 years, right? And so it says it's a potent method to energize an economy that would otherwise be headed for a downturn. The economy was headed for a downturn. Shoot, we had trillions of dollars in net worth almost disappear overnight, right? But what do they do? They printed trillions of dollars to uh, compensate for it and put it in the hands of just about anybody that not necessarily needed it, but anybody that would, would invest it. So it made the market go up and made it look like the economy was great. Company stocks did well. They could cash those stocks in for working capital capital. They could borrow money cheaper. And hence this uh, great market uptick. GDP was growing uh, at an astronomical rate when otherwise it would have had kind of gone through a reset period. So what the government did is they, they learned that they could keep doing it. But here's the interesting it says, depressing the interest rate as a method to energize an economy that would otherwise be headed for a downturn. After the fact, it has always, not just sometimes, but it has always proven to be a perilous maneuver. So in the last 500 years, every time they've done that to depress interest rates of where the cost of borrowing money is a zero, which means only economic growth, but no uh, consequences for borrowing or getting into debt and things like that end up coming back to haunt you and bite you in the future. So, you know, that brings us to this MMT, which is an acronym for Modern Monetary Theory, which is what the government is now adhering to, and a lot of governments are around the world. And that is basically that the federal guys or the people in charge of the government will simply print away any debt. And as long as they create debt, they create this fake economy. And no doubt, history has shown that every time they print money, somehow the debt goes away. Not really. What it does is it creates a situation where inflation becomes the best friend of sovereign debt, basically. So as long as the government continue to fool the naive people by printing money and making it look like everything's just fine because it's really worthless fiat paper, they pretend that it's actually worth something. It isn't. It's just a number that they throw out there that creates more numbers, that creates people that think they have wealth, that think they have some sort of value and perpetuates the problem by reinvesting the stock market and driving it up to uh, unbelievable values, which, we, which we've been seeing. Now, is that necessarily a bad thing or a good thing? Well, as long as we're continuing to grow wealth and continuing to create debt and continuing to print money, it's good. As long as uh, we're restricting the credit and doing what the Fed's doing now and raising interest rate, it causes a, a slight problem. So it comes out to monetary expansion by creating debt or just basically printing money or restricting that. What's happened, and we get to this Ray Dalio story, and he's saying, you know, we're going to have a hard landing. We need to not, we need to be very careful in the market. This is uh, unreal. We had uh, Stan Miller just a month ago say the same thing in a Bloomberg interview. But this last article by Dalio says, you know, Basically, I just summarize the transfer of wealth is that when the government prints money, it finds its way into the private sector. Now, that could be mostly businesses and you know hedge fund managers and Wall Street guys and maybe not you and me or you know the rank and file uh, Joe Blow working class person necessarily gets you know this uh, printed money this these big handouts of stimulus. However, when it gets into the market, when companies are able to expand, hire more people, give people raises, it does trickle through the economy and the private sector continues to get better. For the last decade plus, since the 08 correction and all this quantitative easing, plus the um, pandemic situation was even more a stimulus. A lot of money was created. A lot of wealth was created because that money fell into the hands of somebody, ended up being invested in the stock market, which actually perpetuated, actually compounded the growth of people's net worths. So with that, there's a lot less, I guess, fear of higher interest rates and a little bit more complacency in what's going on with inflation even because there has been so much wealth created in the last decade or so that it's actually able to weather the storm a little bit better. And that's what Ray Dalio says. He says, as 
So maybe this hard landing happening really quick right around the corner may not be so fast. I mean, you know, he's saying that, you know, if a recession happens, it'll happen a little longer. He's kind of looking at next year, I think the last I've heard. And Drecker Miller, who I uh, quoted last week, still thinks that it's going to happen by the end of the year. And he's still uh, very big on the short market right now. But in order to create all this wealth, the public sector or the government has to create such a horrible balance sheet for itself and it, it's a transfer of wealth. So the government gets poorer, gets more and more in debt, gets financially irresponsible over and over again in order to, what, I don't know, get votes or whatever it is that they're doing by creating this wealth. Now, that might bode well for a lot of the people that end up getting that money and getting wealthy. But Ray Dalio says, does it matter that central governments and central banks have such bad balance sheets and income statements if the real economy is still in reasonably good shape? In other words, you know, he thinks, you know, we're probably going to have kind of this tolerably slow growth and maybe not as big of a freak out sentiment amongst uh, those people that actually have money. And so it may not be as huge a sell off as he originally thought. Now, do I buy that? I don't know. He's a smart guy. We ought to consider it. This is brand new information. We've got to consider that in our investment approach or our thought process and, you know, how we allocate assets. Do we want to miss out on an up market or do we want to still be cautious if he still thinks that there's going to be, you know, mild stagflation and still tolerably high inflation? You know, most of the people that I'm reading, including people like Dalio and other economists like Malden, John Malden Economics, you might want to look that up. That's another good source. The consensus is that there's still going to be high inflation. And even if the government has kind of a either a soft or a hard landing recession, which still, based on history, is still probably going to happen. It's still going to happen. So far, it's 100% of the time. So it's very high likelihood that it'll happen, whether it be soft or hard lending is uh, to be determined. But as that happens, there'll probably be some unemployment. There'll be a little market sell-off and the federal government may actually lower interest rates again. But most economists, most smart people still think interest rates over the next year or two will return to the levels they're at and even may even continue to go higher. Some people think mortgage rates are going to continue to go higher than they even are right now. Mm. I think that's that's kind of scary and it's kind of sad, but how do we eat up all that extra debt and create some sense out of it? But the fact that there's been this big transfer of wealth means that those that do have are going to be able to weather the storm. The problem is, is for those that don't have, that's like half of the population that are still wondering how next month's bills are going to get paid. And here's the problem with that. The government thinks that they're supposed to be the person at the rescue and they are. They aid the poor and they create more welfare programs and assistance programs where, you know, the rich continue to pay their way and they pay higher taxes, but the poor people keep getting poorer. So not only does this transfer of wealth to the private sector, unfortunately, it doesn't affect everybody equally. It seems to make the rich get richer and the poor get poorer from a comparative standpoint. And, you know, it does, does create some problems going forward. But bottom line is down the road, it is a bad policy. Dalio says, of course, it, it's a problem when governments and even companies borrow and have debt service and payments that eventually they have to pay back principal, not just debt service, but they have to pay back principal, which is painful. And it creates less opportunity for them to reinvest the money that would otherwise be the new stimulus, right? So companies are going to be able to invest less on infrastructure, less on research and, and design, less on growth. Maybe some of the big companies will still weather that storm again. The rich get richer. The Apples, the Amazons, the Teslas, the Metaverse, the Googles, they get richer and the little companies are struggling to try to, you know, keep ahead of the game and pay off their debt. So it may be still a big shakeout with just, you know, how this all shakes out. But bottom line is the governments have really one choice, and that is to confiscate wealth through taxes, or they print money and create more inflation, which again confiscates wealth by less buying and spending power, especially the middle class and lower class. So again, we're just kind of creating and kicking the can down the road and creating a big problem. Uh, he just reiterates, you know, what we've talked about before, and that is this thing can't go on forever. Maybe we can kick the can down a little longer than we thought we could because of the resilience of the economy. There 
are enough people that are kind of shrugging it off and still willing to pay $450 for a share of NVIDIA stock at 250 price earnings ratio, which seems absurd to me. And I just don't understand how in realistic terms that PE ratio or that actual value of the stock has ever come to some sort of a historical normal value. I'm just picking one that's been in the news lately. But you know, even Apple's about a third higher in price earnings value that it's been. Their earnings are subdued. Microsoft earnings are down. We've got most companies' earnings, even if they surprised on their earnings reports this last quarter, it's they're only not as down as much as they thought they were going to be down, but they're still down from a year ago. So again, we don't have this robust economy, yet we've got people acting as if it does. So there's kind of a disconnect, and it's a real hard place for a lot of these hedge fund managers to play, even Ray Dalio, who's the biggest one. You know, we've got a lot of uh, what-ifs out there. So, you know, the nice part is about this current economy is that one thing is, is that the Fed finally raising interest rates to try to get a handle on it. It's created a situation where there's actually a value to saving money in a safe place without having to be a speculator the whole time, without having to put all your money at risk, you can actually make four or five percent. And although right now that's typically in line with what the inflation is at this point, it doesn't necessarily make up for lost time and the 20 percent that we're down from the time that Biden got in office. But, you know, maybe we can curb the growth rate and still have enough interest on our safe money where you can actually retire and have some guaranteed types of returns or at least predictable returns where you don't have to risk everything to uh, the whims of the stock market if, in fact, it does what Miller says and has a hard landing. Or if it doesn't and does what Dalio says and has more of a soft landing and wait and see, let's push it off as long as we can, but eventually it's going to come back to bite us in the rear. Can you time the market well enough to know when to get in, when to get out? I don't, but that's why I like our approach is where we don't risk all our money in the stock market. We have a a nice diversified approach where we protect the assets, we guarantee income, we protect against principal loss, we make money if the market does surprise us and do well. If it doesn't have a recession, guess what? We don't lose money. If we do have a recession, we don't lose money. If we don't have a recession, it goes up, we make money. So there are ways to do that and have the best of both worlds. We take advantage of that, but we love reading what these economists say because it gives us more support for what we're doing and the approach we're doing. The fact is, is even the smartest people on the planet aren't sure or as sure as they were at one time. And so we've got to take, I think, caution or precautions or at least take a more cautious approach. So, you know, it's a, it's better probably not to take an all-in or all-or-nothing approach because uncertainty is a big retirement plan killer. That's Jeff Ogan of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. And we've been talking about what's happening in the economy and in particular, the U.S. federal deficit. And by the way, Jeff, I'm looking at the U.S. debt clock right now. This is very interesting. It's at usdebtclock.org, usdebtclock.org. And as we're speaking right now, U.S. national debt, $32,703,666,000,000 and counting. It is very, very interesting. Once again, usadebtclock.org. Jeff, I'm sure that our listeners may have questions of you about what's going on with the U.S. debt and how it affects the market and how it affects them. And if they're looking for answers, I want them to request their no-cost, no-obligation Premier Retirement Roadmap by calling 520-780-9059. That's 520-780-9059. When you call, you're going to get a friendly voice, more than likely Shelly, who will gather some basic information from you, then set you up with a conversation with Jeff, who will create a path towards your successful retirement. Now, remember, it's not going to cost you a dime, but it could uncover some blind spots that, when addressed, may help you improve your quality of life in a retirement that could last 30-plus years. Once again, that number to call to get your no-cost, no-obligation retirement roadmap, 520-780-9059. It's 520-780-9059 or online at premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. And Jeff, as we do every week, we talk about a case of the week. So I'm sure that you had a few interesting cases that happened last week. Why don't you tell us about one of the highlights? 
All right. I'm just going to pick one. You know, I've got a lot of people. We're having five to seven new appointments just from our radio calling in lately uh, on a weekly basis. And we're seeing a lot of new people. And we're talking about a lot of situations. And you know, one of the things that I think is a kind of a recurring theme, even though, you know, the stock market, if you look at just the index, the S&P 500 is up this year, the Dow's up this year, the Nasdaq's up a lot this year. But keep in mind, it was down a lot last year and still, you know, barely back to, you know, kind of break even point from a year ago or just slightly up from a year ago. Interestingly, the S&P has 500 stocks in it, yet six stocks, those big ones we keep talking about, have contributed to 100% of the gain of the S&P 500. All that index upside is contributed just by a few. And what I, I see as the recurring theme is, yeah, oh, and by the way, the 493 other stocks, the six or seven stocks that are making all the money, the 493 or 94, depending on how many you pick in the top six or seven, have basically broken even. And there's more that are down than up. Whatever this upside in the market is not affecting every company. Most companies are still falling in price or value. It's indicative of what I'm seeing with most people's statements coming in. I talk to so many people and they come in and you know they had $800,000 in their IRAs last year, 401ks, and now it's $600,000, but it hasn't gone up much. It's gone up like $40,000. Went down 200 last year and up 40. Well, the index has gone down a lot. It's gone up a lot, but it's kind of a more of a roller coaster ride. But keep in mind, the index is cap weighted and it's manipulated in such a way that it doesn't give you a really true picture of what maybe a typical mutual fund would or a typical diversified portfolio of stocks, bonds, and other you know investment instruments would. So I'm, I'm finding a lot of people are frustrated because the market's going up, seemingly the market's going up. Now, the only way to play the market per se is buy an S&P index fund or a Dow index fund or buy the QQQ, which is mostly the NASDAQ. And you, you get to participate in basically that weighted average. It's not maybe as fun as buying stocks and speculating, but you know that is one way to get the ups and the downs. But again, you get all the ups and all the downs. If the market does crash, do you still want another uh, 20% down leg, especially when you haven't made, you know, most of the upside, which is frustrating because most people make downside and don't seem to be making the upside lately. That's just kind of to preface, you know, the type of uh, client that I'm seeing. And this is just kind of one of those typical people that came in, total assets, about a million dollars. And, you know, these people are uh, already retired for a few years, but they're down considerably on their uh, uh, investment for like two or $300,000. And they want to make money, but they don't want to be in the stock market. They're scared of it. And they also have a tax problem. Their net income is, uh, their gross income is a little over 100000 Their net income is, you know, 80000 85 to 90000 is their uh, taxable income. Their gross income is a little over 100 So they're really only taking their uh, standard deduction. Now, right now, that puts them in the 22% tax bracket. They're going to be in the 25% tax bracket, probably ongoing in their life because they have some IRA funds that are going to have to be depleted and so forth. So what I did is just say, you know, how much would we have to move out of future tax problem accounts? The biggest problem was I hate paying taxes. And, you know, I know that taxes are going to go up. I know, I, you know, I'm going to be 73 pretty soon and I'm going to have to start taking this money out anyway. I don't know if I want to use my IRA. So we did basically an accelerated tax program where we moved roughly a third of the money over to alert life insurance plan. Now, what that means is life insurance retirement plan is kind of like a Roth conversion where we took some of the IRA money and decided we're going to pay taxes now. Now, while we're still in the 22% bracket, and we're going to move about $240,000, $250,000 roughly in the next five years out of these accounts. And so $250,000 is going to not be taxed in the future. In other words, we're going to pay taxes now at a lower rate so it doesn't get taxed in the future at whatever the higher rate might be. We're also going to, instead of waiting to take required minimum distributions out in three years, we're going to start using some of that IRA money. In fact, we're going to convert a couple hundred thousand dollars of that money, actually more like uh, about 400, so about maybe 40% of the assets into an account or two accounts, one for her, one for him, both IRAs, where they would lock in a guaranteed rate of return and a payout 
based on their age, life expectancy, and how much they're in. Now, some companies, because interest rates are higher right now, are able to guarantee a payout rate based on about an 8% growth rate on the account and have you not run out of money ever. Now, if they're wrong, they will continue to pay you income. We like these. They're indexed annuities with principal protection, but they also come with an income rider, which is guaranteed income for life. So between these two um, annuities, we ended up creating about $35,000 in guaranteed income starting next year, rather than waiting to required minimum distribution time and only taking out 15, but in 10 years having to take out 40. And then in 20 years, when you're 90 years old and not even needing the money, have to take out 60 or 80,000 to be paying taxes at a higher tax bracket. So what we did is we levelized the income. We put some money in a life insurance retirement alert program, which would then generate about somewhere between 15 and $20,000 in tax-free income. You might think that's not a lot of tax-free income, but wait, by the time we added up social security from both parties, we did the LERP income and we did the guaranteed flatlined IRA income, we came out with a spendable income of about that $85,000 a year, but the taxable, actually, I should have I should have backed up. It wasn't that high before that. By the time they paid taxes, they were down to about 75. But now what we did is we put that, they're still making a little over 100,000 gross income. They're only paying taxes on, because we did some tax planning, 35,000 of that per year. Now, if you're only paying tax on $35,000 because you now your income is low enough that you don't have to pay tax on all of your Social Security, so some of that's tax-free, you get a standard deduction of roughly $28,000 a year for a couple, and then you get this life insurance retirement plan income of another $15,000, you've got about $60,000 that's not being taxed. So now their taxes go from $15,000 a year. Starting next year, their taxes are going to go to somewhere in the neighborhood of about half of that. And by the end of the five years, their tax is going to be about $4,000 a year. When we add that up, their tax bracket between now and the time they're 100 years old, their actual taxes paid on the money that they earn. Now, keep in mind, they're living on about $8,000 spendable. Of course, this is this is a typical middle-class retiree. They're not rich. They're not poor. They have enough. They have no debt. And they've got about a million dollars in assets. And they're living on about eighty dollars to $90,000 spendable income after just a minuscule amount of taxes. But they're uh, doing that because they used the tax benefits of insurance products. The equivalent rate of return, you would have to get 10 or 12% on your money on a regular basis with no volatility in order to beat what the income generated from a life insurance retirement plan in some cases. So, and that and that's not atypical. That's pretty typical. So keep in mind, you know, Wall Street hates them because it's kind of a passive way for you to make income, but they don't get to charge fees over and over again and manipulate the money and trade and make all the money that Wall Street machines make. The index annuities don't either. Now, by the way, we still kept about 180,000 to 200, actually between cash in the bank and the 180 that one of them had in their IRAs that was managed was still about 200, a little over $200,000 in liquid money. And that money does not have to be withdrawn or spent as long as that income from the other IRAs are covering the required minimum distribution. So in other words, those assets could continue to grow. If you want to take out some of that money uh, in the future, you can do that. And by the way, part of the strategy is to convert most of that that I'm talking about into a Roth IRA so that when that money does have to be pulled out, it can be pulled out in chunks tax-free without causing them a higher tax burden. But again, they're going to be paying taxes just barely into the 15% tax bracket when the Trump tax cuts go away in a few years. But all they have to do now is they have to pay about five to 10,000 extra in taxes for the next five years. It's a pretty good trade to probably pay about 50 or 60,000 extra in taxes now. Maybe on the if we really push it and try to be aggressive with the Roth conversion, we could get it up to 100, but that's not part of the plan now. But if we did, we're going to save double or triple that in taxes over the remainder of a retirement lifetime. So again, if you could be in a five and a half or a six percent actual tax payout rate based on spending three million in total income, only paying taxes on a million of it, 
paying about 200000 in taxes total and living on uh, close to $3 million in actual expenditures and giving away more net worth than you have today. That's just the typical way to do a comprehensive plan without risking everything, without doing anything but just saving taxes on Social Security by creating a lower taxable income on your tax returns, by creating true tax-free income, by sheltering some income in a Roth, and by levelizing the retirement income from annuities with income riders rather than taking a little bit now only to get into a higher and higher tax bracket as the required minimum distributions get higher and higher the older you get pretty consolidated, concise story of a comprehensive plan. If you're just joining us, this is Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan, and we've been discussing his case of the week, which in this case dealt with tax planning. If you want to hear the show all over again, don't worry, we're also a podcast. Simply go to wherever you get your podcast, search for Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan. You'll get this show and all of our past shows so that you can stay on top of your wealth and your path to a successful retirement. Want more talk about sustaining your wealth and thriving in a retirement that could last 30-plus years? Stay tuned for more Premier Retirement with Jeff Hogan after this. If you're driving right now, you know how important it is to stay focused and alert. But when it comes to your finances, does it sometimes feel like your financial advisor is asleep at the wheel? At Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management, we have our hands firmly on the wheel when it comes to your 401k, IRA, taxes, Social Security, health care, and legacy planning. We proactively scan the horizon for hidden hazards and seek out potential opportunities to help ensure you can enjoy your retirement journey. It's time to experience what it's like to be more than just a name and an account number. Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management was created to serve you, not a bunch of shareholders. To learn more and to get your complimentary financial review, visit us at premret.com. That's P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Or call us at 520-780-9059. That's 520-780-9059. Premier Retirement. It's your money. Keep it that way. Investment advisory services offered through Premier Wealth Advisors, LLC, and Arizona State Registered Investment Advisor. You can't start a trip you've never taken without a plan. And you can't start your retirement journey without a comprehensive plan to get there safely. To request your no-cost Premier Retirement Roadmap, call 580-780-9059 or request it online at premret.com. Now back to more Premier Retirement with Jeff Hogan and Jeff Shea. Welcome back to Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan, founder and president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management here in Tucson and also up in Mesa. Jeff, listener questions up next. We'll kick it off with Jason in Rancho Vistoso who writes, I've read things about the 4% withdrawal strategy, which seems to indicate that I'm going to be reducing my savings by 4% each year. It seems like I should be earning at least 4% in that money and that the principal should stay the same. Go untouched. What do you expect or what do you advise clients for returns on a conservative portfolio? Well, you, you mentioned a 4% rule. That was actually studied by, uh, actually uh, came up with by a guy named William Bangin, who was a CFP back in the, I think it was 1993, if I'm not mistaken. You know, that's 30 years old. And what he came out with is, okay, based on the historical returns of the stock market and the historical returns of the bond market, the fact is they all go up and they all go down. Now, historically, at the time, you look back 100 years from when Bankin did this study, bonds were averaging somewhere in the 5 or 6% average annual rate of return. Stocks were averaging 10% rate of return. I think it's still somewhere close to that if you look at the long-term history on an average annualized rate. Well, why then? And this rule of 4% is the 4% rule says if you don't take out more than 4% of your money each year, you won't run out of money in 25 years. It's within the bell curve of probability, which means like 98.9% or something that you're not going to run out of money well, how in the world then 
If you think about it, if the stock market averages 10%, the bond market averages 5 or 6, and you have a 60-40 split, either way, 60 bonds, 60 stocks, whatever, either one, how is it that both of those have an average annual rise rate of more than 4%, but if you take out 4%, you have a chance of running out of money if you want to live more than 25 years? Well, it's because of volatility. Anything that goes below zero point or is not principal protected makes you eat up more of your gains or more of your future gains while the market's down. In other words, the market will not actually average 4% if you're taking money out. That basically underscores what I've always preached is that math does not work the same when you're taking money out living on it or even taking an income from your investments as it does while you're growing investments. The dollar cost averaging rule applies and actually enhances the rate of return. If you dollar cost average into the market and there's volatility, for example, the market's not like it did in 2000 and also again in 2007 and 8, you're buying twice as many shares of stock for the same exact injection of capital when the market's down as you were buying a year ago or two when Apple traded at 100, for example. Then you get to buy Apple at 50, you buy two shares with the same $100. So pretty soon you have a lot more shares when the market does come back to even. And instead of averaging, you know, 6 or 8% or 10%, maybe you're average 10 or 12% in the market. And maybe in the bond market, you're averaging 6 or 7 So on the way up, dollar cost averaging helps you. But on the way out, it hurts you. Wall Street forgets to tell you that story because they don't want to lose your assets because they're going to lose fees and they're going to lose commissions and lose all kinds of revenues from manage your money when you get to the highest savings level you've ever been at. So Wall Street hates the whole idea about that. Yet the 4% rule somehow is still being touted. Like, well, as long as you don't take 4% out, that should totally make people cut and run from the brokerage industry or anything volatile. Now, there are insurance companies right now, for example, and your point is well taken. Well, wait a minute. Well, if I take 4% rule, it, stocks and bonds, if they average you know 4 to 10%, respectively, how can I take 4% am I still going to actually assume that I'm taking out principal? Well, yeah, because on the way down, you take out more money than on the way up. And that money you took out on the way down when you had to take out double, when you had to sell double the stock in order to provide the same amount of lifestyle living on a monthly income basis as you used to, that's money that won't return to normal. Keep in mind that in a three decade long retirement, you're going to have probably three or four minimum, three or four big market corrections like we've seen in the past. You know, it only takes one to get you off the plan, it takes two to get you really off the plan, it takes you three to get almost broken, four to be, I'm way past done. I tell you a story about Norm, who had a million dollars and kept it in the market because the volatility was out of money within about 10 years. And he came to see me, he said, what am I going to do? I can't get my million back. No, you can't get your million back. And the thing is, is he didn't even spend a million because the market crashed and he spent the money while it was deflated in 2000, 2001 and two, came back a little bit. He had to get a part-time job and go on social security early just to make ends meet. Then he comes to see me 10 years after the crash in 2009 and 10 roughly was the time he came and saw me he said Jeff can you save me I've only got 200,000 left on my money and I've, I'm still working part-time in order to make ends meet I thought I was going to be able to retire on a million dollars and use uh, you know eight to ten percent like my broker said because the stock market averages eight to ten well even if he used the 4% rule, and I've got a chart that says if he used the 4% rule and was in the S&P 500, which is less volatile than what he was in, he was in the NASDAQ, he would have still been down in 20 years. He would, if he, if he went from 2000 to 2020, I did this chart in 2020, he would have still been out half of his money if he only took 5% out. So 5% out, he's already through half of his money and he's only 80 years old. What if he lives to 95 or 100? Guess what? Two more market correction and he is way beyond broke. And this, again, is him having to work part-time. So, again, the 4% rule is a stock market rule because of volatility. If you want to get rid of that rule, here's what you can do right now. I can tell you how exactly you don't have to withdraw any principal for the next 10 years. Let's just take it in chunks. There are insurance companies that don't invest any of your money in the market. They buy a laddered portfolio of bonds 
They take all the risk and they guarantee you five to five and a half percent per year for 10 years. There, take five and a half percent out and you will have exactly the same amount of principal at the end of 10 years as you have right now. Furthermore, those insurance companies, their fixed insurance companies are guaranteed. The money's guaranteed by assets. They're guaranteed by reserves. They're guaranteed by surpluses. And they're even guaranteed by a state guarantee fund that's better funded if you consider the risk that they're taking, better funded than the FDIC, which has almost no money compared to the insured accounts that they are are supposed to cover. So you've got plenty levels of, of security. You can do that just with insured money. Now, let's back it up. Speaking of these insurance companies, if they're not risking your principal, they also have plans where they know that they can leverage the interest that they make on their money and maybe make closer to eight to 10 in good years, but never dip into the principal because they're not interested in dipping into principal. They're interested in preserving your cash. Well, if you were to take a lifetime income payout, now keep in mind the 4% rule assumes that during volatile periods, you'll be withdrawing more than you make. And during good times, you'll make more than you withdraw. Overall, You know, you think it comes out of wash, but you still have a chance to run out of money. Now, if you retire right at the beginning of a down market, you might have a different story and you might end up be worth twice or three times what you started out worth. But if you retire at the height of a market before a rocky period or a volatile period, then you might end up running out of money. So let's just go back to these annuity companies. Indexed annuities have income riders where they will actually guarantee income based on about an 8% rate of return. Or in other words, depending on your age, they might give you a certain income bonus or say, hey, you know what, if you're going to park your your money here and you'll leave it here for life. We know we can invest it long term and we know we can leverage the interest. Uh, We'll give you an 8% payout on that money or whatever it comes out. Maybe it's 7%, maybe it's uh, 9% depending on your age and life expectancy. But it's almost always higher than four. I mean, I I don't even know one that's lower than four that I use. I mean, in fact, uh, usually it's five, six and up as far as a payout rate guaranteed never to run out of money. So Let's just say you have a couple million dollars and you were thinking about taking the 4% rule or taking $80,000 a year out because that was a safe amount. But there's still a chance that you'll run out of money out of that $2 million. Well, what if you put $1 million in an account that paid you the $80,000 forever till you died, no matter what, even if the account ran out of money and you had that whole million dollars, just earning fixed, simple interest of one, two, three, four, or 5%. Let's just say it averages 3% for the next 30 years. Do you know that's going to more than double your extra million? So you'll still have at least $2 million in assets when you die. So if you're talking about a 4% rule and keeping your principal intact, not being feasible, what if you can guarantee that it's feasible just by putting half of your money into an insured account that guarantees income and let the other one ride conservatively without even taking risk and still being worth a 2000 as you draw the one down, the other one's growing at the equivalent rate of return. So there are ways to do this without using Wall Street products or strategies. Now, I'm not necessarily anti-Wall Street, but I am anti-Wall Street propaganda where they talk you into keeping all your money in the stock market all the time, no matter what, even when it's not the right thing for you. I think there are times, for example, that second million doesn't have to go into a, a low interest rate account. If it's going to be in there for 30 years and you know the stock market over long periods of time does really well, then maybe you take a flyer on the other million. Maybe you take half of it in a fixed account that doesn't have risk so that you can take money out on occasions. Maybe you put the other money into an aggressive investment account where you buy tech stocks and things that are getting involved in AI or whatever the next big crazy thing is that, you know, is going to go to the moon and maybe you have $10 million when you die, but you never had to risk your income to do it because you put half your money in the right thing. Now, again, if you don't have 2 million, you have half that, just divide the numbers I'm telling you in half. If you have 10 times that, just times it by 10. Bottom line is there are plenty of ways without what you've learned about to get you to retirement. Different ways will get you through retirement. 
Jason, thanks a lot for that question. Of course, we will send you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. And thank you for listening to us in Rancho Vistoso. Jeff, our next question is Carol in the Catalina Foothills. And Carol says, I'm 64 and planning to retire at the end of this year. It seems like people approaching retirement get very conservative with their investments. Should they indeed be doing that? Well, I think recently, just within the last year or two, more people are talking conservative. But uh, before that, honestly, I was noticing, and I'm not necessarily agreeing with this philosophy, most people with 0% interest on bonds and CDs were saying, well, I have to retire and there's no way I can't be aggressive. I have to be aggressive or I'll never make any money and my money will run out. But they weren't looking at anything beyond stocks, bonds, and cash to do so because that's all they knew based on their 401ks or their brokerage firm telling them that's all they had to offer them. The bottom line is you should be conservative, in my opinion. You know, when people ask what I do for a living, it's not like, oh, I'm a wealth manager. I manage wealth. I trade stocks for my clients and try to make money. It's, you know, my job is not to do that. My job is to help rich people stay rich or retirement uh, planning is to basically help you keep your money safe from losing it so that you can't enjoy that retirement that you've uh, lived a lifetime to prepare for. I want to protect your lifetime's work and make sure that it serves you the best that it can. And you can do that through a variety of different products, including the insurance world. I'm not just an insurance guy, but I want to add that. So many people who listen to the show, all they've been exposed to is Wall Street. Now, I'm not anti-Wall Street. I just think you ought to be dipping into both sides. The insurance world guarantees income, guarantees certain tax benefits, guarantees against principal protection and loss, uh, even in bad markets. And still gives reasonable upside and better than historically better than CD rates of return, you know, considering how safe it is, is a good thing to diversify into when you're talking safe money. We just learned in the last couple of years that bonds can go down double digits in value because interest rates are being raised by the Fed. We've been in a 40 year cycle where interest rates have continued to fall since the early 80s, 40 years, the interest rates have been falling, which means bond prices have gone up enough to cover fees, cover commissions pay us more than the interest that you're actually getting on the bond and everything's a bonds is like, oh my gosh, it's the best hedge in the world. Well, it is when the interest rates are falling, but not when they're going up and now they're going up. Are they going to fall again? Well, maybe, maybe now's a good time to buy bonds. Maybe for a little while, if there is a softening of the interest rates, but there's no guarantee of that. There's a lot of uh, gurus and economists that think interest rates are going to stay where they are, maybe go a little bit higher, maybe dip from time to time, but we might be in a higher cycle of interest rate increasing over the next several years, and that will bode bad for bonds. Well, how do you solve the problem of safe money if the rising interest rates hurt the stock market's prospects going forward and rising interest rates hurt the value of bonds going forward? Well, maybe Wall Street isn't the place to put all your money. You know, consider being conservative and using principal protected accounts. Thankfully, short-term bonds are still paying over 4.5% right now. Uh, you can get uh, annuities that are paying over 5 that guarantee 5 for up to 10 years, sometimes more. You can get payouts for income that are guaranteed at higher than a 5% payout if you just want to make some of your money turn into an income stream like a pension that you didn't have from work that used to be kind of the commonplace idea of going to work, get a pension, and have your income. Well, now you have a 401k and savings, and if you lose it in the market or by making bad investment decisions or things that you can't control end up wiping out your nest egg, then you don't have a pension. So it might be nice to be conservative in that regard and basically consider making sure you have all the income you need to pay all your bills first. And then if there is some money left that you can't afford to lose or risk, then, you know, maybe look at some responsible ways to allocate into the stock market when, you know, the times look like it's a smart place to play. Like right now, I think it's a little sketchy. You know, fundamentals don't support uh, a lot of upside in the market right now. 
even though there's momentum uh, to the contrary, that there's still people that uh, believe in it and are still throwing money at the market and buying stocks at exorbitantly high earnings rates and uh, or high PE rates and extraordinarily overvaluations compared to history, but people are doing it. So, you know, maybe you have a little bit of money you want to speculate with. That's fine, but be conservative first. Make sure your income is secured. Make sure you have enough to live on. Make sure you have enough for emergencies. And give yourself the peace of mind that you deserve in retirement because it's going to be hard to go get that job back if all of a sudden things don't go your way and you're 80 years old and run out of money. So again, conservative, I think, is a smart way to go. But conservative doesn't mean you don't get to make money on your investments. There are plenty of ways to do so, especially if you're using tax planning uh, strategies where you save taxes. You don't have to make as much if you're saving taxes as well. Again, incorporate all the things that we've talked about on this show. And you can be very conservative and still be very happy with the upside income and the guarantees provided that are out there. Carol, thanks for that question. Thanks for listening to us in the foothills. And thank you for including your address. If you do send us a question in by going to primrat.com, don't forget to include your address because Carol, you're going to get Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead, and also a complimentary retirement review where you can sit down with Jeff and ask your individual questions. Jeff, final question this week is Gary in Tucson. And Gary says, I'm 66. My wife is 64 and we plan to retire in a year. So next summer, we've got about $750,000 in our retirement accounts right now. We have $120,000 left on our mortgage. We want to know whether it's a good idea to pay off our mortgage before retirement. Well, it depends. Uh, $750,000 in your retirement accounts, is it all pre-tax IRA accounts where you're going to be taxed on all this money? If it is, I'd say, I don't care what your interest rate is on your $120,000 left on your mortgage, it's going to either be taxed probably at higher than a 25% tax rate, which means in order to get $120,000 out, you're going to have to pull $180,000 out of IRA money. That's $180,000 out of the $750,000 that you don't have working for you just to pay off your mortgage. You're going to pay $60,000 in taxes roughly on that. And since you're 66, uh, guess what? Your Medicare premiums are probably going to double for a couple of years just because you want to pay off your mortgage. Well, it's going to cost you 60 extra thousand in taxes to do that. I mean, if your income is such, if you have 750,000 in retirement accounts, you know, I'm guessing maybe your income's maybe in the 100,000 or less range where you're probably in the 15% tax bracket after standard deductions and other write-offs. If you are, then you'd be better off paying 15% on that money as you pull it out and just you know, if you can pull out a little extra and stay in that 15% tax bracket, then pay that 120000 off maybe a little faster than you otherwise would, but I would not take it out of your retirement accounts. Now, if you have a mortgage less than 5%, then definitely don't pay it off because you can invest any of that 750 or any of your bank money now at 5% or better. If you can make more money than you're paying in interest, then it's silly to pay off the interest because I think having cash in chunks available to you is king. I mean, that's very important. You know, I know some people that have been so bent on following this, oh, I got to get out of debt. I can't have any debt that they spent all their savings on getting out of debt. They have no debts. They have really reasonably good cash flow. But if a big hiccup happens, either health-wise, a kid gets in trouble, you need to do something that might cost 40 or 50 or a couple hundred thousand dollars, you don't have that access to the money. You can't go back and say, you might not even be able to go back because your income level is low. You don't have any debt, but maybe your income isn't such that you could even get another mortgage on your house. Or if you do, it's going to be at a higher rate than it was when you got the mortgage. If your mortgage is two or 3%, keep it no matter what. And that's because you can make better interest on any investment pretty much out there nowadays, even safe investments. If the interest rates get so high in your mortgage, if let's say uh, you've got a seven and a half percent mortgage, I just had a client come in, by the way, that I had a HELOC, a home equity line of credit, Mm -hmm. and they were forced to pay it off or they were going to reset the interest to like eight or nine percent. So they actually got a conventional mortgage, but it was seven and a quarter percent. But their HELOC was only two. They thought they were, you know, set for life. They paid off a bunch of debt. They, you know, went and bought a new car. They did a whole bunch of stuff. They had this little two percent loan. No big deal. Now it's seven percent. All of a sudden, 
sudden their, you know, the interest rates create uh, $700 a month more in interest on this loan that they'd uh, taken out on their house a long time ago. Well, in that case, you know, they asked, should we pay it off? I says, well, you're guaranteed 7% rate of return essentially over the next 10 years if you pay it off now. Or you'd have to make 7% on your money in order to call it a wash. Now, they have seven or $800,000 in, you know, very similar to you in other assets that's still available if they need it for uh, cash. But I said, if you take it out of your IRAs, you know, you owe almost a, a little over $100,000. I said, you're going to have to uh, pay tax on, you know, about thirty or 40000 extra dollars. We are? Yeah. Well, we don't want to pay tax. Right. You don't. But there is some cash in the bank and there's some Roth money that has already been paid tax. I said, well, it is Roth IRA and it is nice to have Roth uh, account, but... If you can get out of this money and make 7% or save $1,000 you know, a month in what you're paying out of pocket, then your cash flow increases by that amount. And maybe you can just, you know, if your taxes come in good in the future years, you can replenish that Roth IRA that you're pulling the mortgage money out of by converting some of your IRA money to the Roth and still stay in a 15% tax bracket rather than jump into the 25 just to pay it off. So again, there's, there's tax strategies you have to consider when you look at paying off mortgages and any loan or any big expense with IRA money. I had a lady that pulled $500,000 out of her IRA to fix up her house after her husband died. He didn't want to do it because he thought it was a waste of money. Mm-hmm. What he really didn't want to do it is because he didn't want to pay tax on five hundred grand to revamp their entire house. Well, she did it, not understanding the tax ramifications, and then came and saw me and tried to have me try to fix it. I'm like, you already spent the money. You already took it out of your IRA. I can't fix it. She was upset that I couldn't fix it because I guess she thought I was magic or something. <laughs> but you, you can't undo a tax problem once you get yourself into it. So better to ask the question like you did and make sure you avoid any potentially devastating mistakes that cost you a ton of your IRA funds just by upfront loading the tax man. And we don't want to do that. Gary, again, thanks for that question. We'll send you out Jeff's book, Retirement the Road Ahead. If you've got a question you'd like us to answer on the air, go to the website, primret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Ask it there. And of course, if we do use it on the air, you will get Jeff's book, Retirement the Road Ahead. Jeff, before we continue, once again, I want to remind people that they can get their no-cost, no-obligation retirement roadmap with you by calling 520-780-9059, 520-780-9059, just a friendly conversation to sit down with Jeff. He'll ask you some questions. You'll ask him some questions, see if it's a fit to design a plan for you that could get you to and through retirement. Once again, 520-780-9059 or online at premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, not a lot of time left in the program today, but I promised that we would talk about target date funds. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but a lot of people may have target date funds and they don't know they have them. Is that a correct statement? Well, you know, there's some 401ks I've seen that come in and all they have available is target date funds, unless you want to pick your own stocks. And that's kind of tough. So one of the good things about target date funds is they do give you an automatic diversification to a certain split of stocks, bonds, and indexes and different things. The thing is, is they're not really managed by sophisticated management. You don't get Peter Lynch or some of these, you know, the guy that made Magellan great. You don't get some of these great world-renowned money managers rebalancing or buying stuff. It's really just kind of just a, I don't know, a shotgun approach to just, you know, buying a bunch of stocks, buying a bunch of bonds, kind of allocating a mix. And I think it's really, I mean, if you want to know my uh, my take on it, 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 it appears that all the second and third rate funds 
ETFs, managed accounts, kind of make up this uh, target date fund because it's easy. And a lot of people pick them because they don't know what funds to pick. So they go, oh, well, I'm going to retire at X. I'm going to retire in five years. That's really a short period of time. So I'm going to just pick that fund. Well, you have no idea what's in there. And, and a target date for five years away might be 60% stocks and 40% bonds, which I think is a little heavy in the stock market considering, you know, the stock market could crash and take five years to get back to even. You might not make any money. Maybe it should be more of a 60 or 70% bonds and stocks. But then again, bonds go down too. So what about the target date fund people last year that were in a, let's just say a 50-50 bond fund because they were going to retire in 2023. That was their target date fund. And a couple of years ago, they decided they were going to do that. And over the last two years, stock market is down 20%, bond market down 15%. So overall, they're down 17 or 18%. They put a little bit of money in, got some match from the 401k through their employer. And now they're down 15%. Well, they might have had a million dollars in there two years ago. thought they were going to retire with $1.2 million. Instead, they got 850000 so, you know, what would have been maybe a little bit better opportunity? Well, maybe you take 800 of that million dollars that you had a couple of years ago and put it in some principal protected accounts. And then instead of uh, using a target date fund, pick a really good uh, exchange traded fund or a good mutual fund manager that has a balanced fund for the other 200. So you have some liquidity, but maybe don't get exposed to all that downside. So instead of being down $150,000, maybe you're down twenty dollars or $30,000 max if you would have taken that approach. And what I mean by principal protection is we would use index accounts that if the market continues to go up, they make money, but if they go down, they don't lose. So I would much rather have a target date type fund offer something that would protect principal, not just reallocating the stocks and bonds, both of which are risky. That's the biggest thing I don't like. And people don't understand what they're getting. I think they get probably the second class rated managers, maybe new guys that haven't managed money, or maybe it's just some sort of automated hodgepodge of things that increase the investment allocations to some of the you know, lousy or un- underperforming funds that a mutual fund family like Vanguard or T. Rowe Price or, you know, principal group or Fidelity or somebody, whoever's managing your uh, account and target date funds. John Hancock's another one. I think they just reallocate to spread the money around to make sure that each of their managers has a certain uh, nest egg to manage. I think it's really a game to help them. I don't think it's a game to help you. I think it would be better if they just offered like they used to a series of funds that had, you know, track records and you get to pick the mix that you want. It's pretty easy if you have eight or 10 different choices and you know, hey, these are growth funds and this is what they've you know done over the years. This is a pretty good, obviously a pretty good managed fund because it's beating the market or it's keeping up or it's, its worst year is only X and its best year is X and I can live within that range, et cetera. I mean, most people are smart enough to look at a set of options and choose without having to choose this pre-made fund that you have no idea who's managing it, what it's in, and if it's really safe. And it really isn't suited, in my opinion, for, in any case, even the shortest term retirement plan still has enough aggressive allocation uh, to scare me if I'm trying to protect my assets and retire next year or the next, uh, or, or, or in a few years. If our listeners have questions about target date funds and whether or not they're appropriate for their portfolio, once again, call Jeff Bogan at Premier Retirement, 520-780-9059 and request your complimentary consultation. Once again, 520-780-9059. If you want to hear the show again, don't worry. We're also a podcast. Just go to wherever you get your podcast and search for Premier Retirement with Jeff Bogan. You'll find this show and all of our past shows so that you can stay on top of your wealth and your path to a successful retirement. Jeff, we're out of time for this week. I want to thank you for your time. Most of all, thank the fine people here of the greater Tucson area for listening to us. For Jeff Ogan, I'm Jeff Shade. Get out, have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again next week with another edition of Premier Retirement right here on 790 KNST, Tucson's most stimulating talk. 
Investment advisory services provided through Premier Wealth Advisors, LLC, an Arizona state registered investment advisor. Securities transactions are placed through TD Ameritrade. Insurance and annuity products are offered through Premier Advantage, Inc., DBA Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Investing involves risk, including the potential loss of principal. Any reference to protection, safety, or lifetime income generally refer to fixed insurance products. Insurance guarantees are backed by the financial strength and claims paying abilities of the insurance carrier. The show is intended for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as advice or recommendations. Due to show format, accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Premier Retirement and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice and may only conduct business with residents of states and jurisdictions where they're properly registered.